What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner, and this week on the show we have NHRA Pro Stock Motorcycle Range Racer Angie Smith. Angie, what is going on? How's everything going? Going good. Going good down there. Going somewhat good up here. I'm in the middle of full thrash mode myself trying to put two cars together and fighting every gremlin on earth plus the typical covid gremlin so you know it's a it's another exciting day in race car paradise oh i know how that is we've been down that road many times yeah you know that that's kind of interesting because pro stock motorcycles don't run on small block chevys they run on some pretty pretty defined and specialized parts so i'm assuming that covid might have thrown you guys for a serious loop Yes, it did. When we showed up in Gainesville in 2020, we got the awning up, everything was set up, ready to go, took our bikes to tech because Gainesville is our first race. So we have to go through body template and chassis template, got all that done. And Eddie Crowett come over and said, hey, they canceled the race. And I'm like, what? What are you? Are you crazy? And he's like, no, I'm serious. And I'm like, I don't believe you. I thought he was joking with me. He's like, here's the message. Look at it and read it. And I read it and I was just shocked. And we had to tear everything back down and go back home. And then that's where we, you know, sat around and didn't know when we were going to race next. And it was just bizarre of how it all unfolded. Um, But during that time, um, our plan was, we had obtained a, um, an engine dyno uh, at, from Mike Berry over the winter. And our plan was to get through the racing season, build our dyno room, and use start doing engine dyno at the end of the season. That was our plan for December, January, and February. Well, we expedited that plan. <laughs> I had to put on my carpenter belt. And we started building the room, and me and Matt built the room ourselves. We insulated it. We did all the electrical, did everything, and we were dynoing engines in probably four weeks after that. So oh, wow. it was very beneficial for us. Never give racers free time for multiple reasons. I've always said this. Like, you, you tell racers, hey, you know, it's a multi-day event. You're going to have a rain delay tomorrow, at least in my experience. I've seen shenanigans happen of unprecedented scales. And then you give racers downtime to be productive and they, you know, Hey, let's build a dyno room. Okay. Done. Yeah, exactly. And I will say that that really took our program to the next level. We really learned a lot with the engine dyno. We have a chassis dyno. And to that point we had used the chassis dyno to when we would do new stuff on engines We'd put the bike on the chassis dyno, run it, and if we saw gains, that was great. If we didn't, then we kind of was like, okay, well, we're going to do something different. The engine dyno is a true gauge of horsepower because you don't have all the other factors from tire, chain, how it's strapped down, et cetera. All of those factors factoring into your horsepower number. Yeah, that you know, that's an interesting kind of point to make, and... Is there a big difference with motor dynoing motorcycle engines versus full-size car engines since, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of overall general differences, but is there a different way you go about it or is it pretty much the same? Are you, do you mean from chassis dynoing to engine dynoing? It's, it is different. It's a lot different. Yeah, because I figure with a motorcycle, with it being such a smaller displacement and just all the different factors in play, that that on an engine dyno probably behaves a whole lot different than your typical, you know, passenger car engine, right? Yeah, I think so. For sure. And again, it's interesting to to kind of see that that you guys have that ability to really bring all that in in house and then that's just, you know, I, I don't think people understand how close pro stock motorcycle racing and pro stock car racing really mimic each other that they are such fine-tuned machines. They they aren't sledgehammers of horsepower little grains of sand make a big difference for sure you know we are excited when we find three to five horsepower we're ecstatic about it and your normal car person would probably say you know if we find 10 horsepower we're happy so 
Well, I guess we are on a much smaller scale and it just being pro stock with no power adder, three to five horsepower is a lot for us. Oh, it's, it's a mountain of a difference in just everything. That's, you know, the, the, the more I start kind of digging in, at least on the, the pro stock car side of things and talking to people and learning about it, just like the nuances of those vehicles and like fast NA stuff what you have to do to find those little nuggets of horsepower and the difference they make is just, it's monumental. It really is. Now let's, you know, turn things back a little bit. We, we could circle back to this a little bit later. You know, you, you, your, your background was circle track racing. Wasn't originally kind of what your family was into? Uh, yes. My family was into circle track racing. My dad actually worked on a pit crew at Bowman Gray stadium. Oh. It's kind of your local, your local racers go out and you're the hometown hero and everybody picks a side and it's a quarter mile short track around a football field and everybody races on Saturday night. And anybody from the town that you grew up in and the surrounding towns are there and they pack the place and 25,000 fans can be there at one night. I didn't know that it was asphalt racing, specifically Bowman Gray. Like to, yes. to to the listeners that might not be aware, Bowman Gray Stadium. The best way to describe that place when it comes to racing is like a Greek coliseum. It's packed. It's wild. The racing is hardcore. That you know they they just started showing a lot of their stuff on Flow Racing. I'd seen some stuff before some some TV series that follow the racers there. It's like Friday night football in Texas. Like it's huge there. It is. And I still go to this day. I went last Saturday, and if the rain holds off, we'll go this Saturday. I, w- I was going there ever since I was probably in my mom's arms, and I, I love it there, you know, just because I know a lot of the racers. I know a lot of people that work on the pit crews. I grew up there, so that's kind of where I was born and raised. Interesting. That's that's that that definitely kind of I guess plays into the competitive side that you have because again it's that that place it's hard to put into words what it's like to race there and you know the fire that people have and you know things things can get heated in and out of the pits there. Yes, for sure. I mean, and they race for very very small amounts of money and you know a lot of the people that own the teams like you know they work a normal job. Monday through Friday, then they go home and they work on their race car till midnight and they do it all over again. And then, you know, when you're tearing your race car up on a Saturday night, it probably takes you the next five days to get to get it back together along with working your normal job. So it's a totally, totally different lifestyle that that I'm living now compared to that. Um, But I love that I still go back there and know a lot of the drivers and the people there. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a dirt track racing fan, and I was watching Flow on their uh, their their race night in America, and some dude got the wheel bad. All the, this other racer just put him in the wall. You you could tell things were going to get interesting, and the cameraman knew to get on him because he saw him, you know, throw his arms up in the car. He gets out holding the steering wheel. And I told my wife, I said, I am willing to put money right now that that steering wheel is going to take flight in half a lap. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, as soon as that other guy rolled by, he chucked that steering wheel and kicked off that quarter panel. It was funny because it almost hit the guy who threw it. But that's just, you know, the the whole fire of that circle track racing. It's a different world. It is. It is a different world. And that's probably why my daddy was like, never would he ever, ever let me race over there. And to tell you the truth, I don't know that I have the patience to race over there. It's probably a good thing that I do drag race because I'm very competitive. But if somebody come out there and and hit me and wrecked my car and all the hard work that my team put into it, I would probably I would be the one doing the revenge. And that's probably not good. So I'm probably good at drag racing where I am. Yeah, I was going to say, you'd probably be the one that would be standing in front of their trailer before they even got to the pit, just waiting on them to come back. Yeah. yeah that, that, again, that's something I've seen before. It's, it's a different world than drag racing, and it, it's, it, it's competitive and it's fun. Now, how did you find the world of drag racing coming from circle track racing? Because a lot of times that's not something that, again, that, that are concentric circles. You know what I mean? Well, the... Um, so the high school that I grew up in, um, 
a lot of people were getting street bikes because a lot of the guys were, you know, right turning 18 and when street bikes were really big and, you know, the kind of the group of people that we were hanging out with, you know, they wanted to go to the track. So we started going to the track on a Friday night, just hanging out and a couple of them would race. And that's kind of how it all started with me. I was like, you know, there was one or one or two girls driving cars out there. And I was like, I bet I could race a bike out here. And that's kind of how it started. And, you know, I bought a bike against my parents' wheel when I was 19 years old and they didn't know about it for a good three or four months. And I told them and, you know, then they were kind of mad at me because, you know, I'm going to college and trying doing it, the degree and doing the college thing. And, um, and they were like, you know, you just need to focus on school. But, and, and I did, and I got my degree and all of that, but you know, there was something in me that I just wanted to go racing. You know, my dad was like, you're not going circle track racing. So I kind of tried drag racing before he ever knew about it. And then I told him that I had already did it. So he couldn't say no at that point. <laughs> Solid plan. I love it. The, the, the quiet top secret hidden rebellion. And it's funny, you know, you grew up in a racing family and it's just, you know, for most of the people that probably listen to this, will could agree to this as well and get your take on it is once you're kind of in that racing lifestyle, especially at the family level, it never leaves you. It never does. It, no, it doesn't. You know, um, Matt and I always talk about this, like, you know, what happens if racing went away? I mean, it would be, a very hard life transition for both of us because one, because we work all the time, you know, a lot of people don't think that, you know, they just see us riding the bike and that's the part that they see, but there's so much work that goes into getting the truck there, getting the trailer there, getting the motors done and all of that. And me and Matt, and now just this year, we have one other guy that works in our shop, which we have not had that in the previous 13 years. And so it takes sun up to sundown, sometimes seven days a week. I mean, there's been times where we've worked 20 days straight and, you know, you don't get days off and you don't get to go on vacation. And, you don't get to go summer vacation. You don't get to do the family functions. You don't get to do the, the reunions. You don't get to do the stuff that a normal person gets to do. And I think we accept that now, but it would be a hard transition to be at home, work a nine to five job, be home at five thirty, eat dinner. And I think we would be bored. Yeah. You, you just, you wouldn't know what to do. You, you don't, you know, that's, it's very hard to explain to people that don't live the lifestyle to really for them to understand because one, a lot of them look at you like you're crazy. Like you, wait, you do, why do you want to do that? And it's like, it, it's what I enjoy. You know, some people like to go fish and I like to spin wrenches and I just happen to find a way to make it my life. Right. Now you kind of telling that story right there. makes me thought of a question, you know, your typical fans, I jokingly say, think that, you know, racers are just like, they're, they're like dolls, you know, they, they race on the weekend, then, you know, they, they go back in their packaging, they hang out till the racing starts. That is far from the case. Kind of, kind of walk through our listeners, what it's like in the weekly life for a professional race team, like what you guys do. So it's kind of crazy. Um, so when, like, when we start the season, obviously during the winter time, we have to go through all the motors. We have to find, do all the research and development. We have to order parts. We have to do all the inventory and make sure that we have everything to start the season. But then when the season starts, you know, we go and race, we go and race and we have two bikes, myself and Matt, we have two spare bikes. We have one spare bike a piece. So, so that's two more bikes. So that's four then he is managing the scrappers program and doing all the research and development on their program. So that's six. So after every race, the bikes come home, the motors come out, we clean the chassis, we tear all the motors down, make sure all the parts are good. You, um, we have to assemble everything and back together, put all the motors back in. And on top of that, you know, I, I'm, in charge of all the finances so i have to pay all the bills 
I have to clean the toter home, clean the trailer, make sure all that is good, go to the grocery store, make sure all the crew guys have food to eat, book the flights, book the rental cars. Um, the list goes on and on. So, you know, there's not a day that I get to have off and not do anything as that it relates to this business with just him and I kind of running the whole business. Uh, it's a lot. And especially when you're running four and six motorcycles, it's a lot, but you know, we managed to get it all done. You know, sometimes when I get stressed out, he's like, okay, what, what can I do? Cause I know you're stressed out just when I have a lot on my plate and, um, but we get it done and, you know, we've been very successful at it. Um, there's not days that go by that I don't have anything to do. So, <laughs> and it's funny when you, you walk through that whole scenario, that's when everything goes right. What people yes. don't understand is when things go wrong, that just adds a multiplier of things you have to deal with. Even, you know, a small mechanical failure to say it feels like a pebble in your shoe is an understatement because then that adds a whole different layer of things you have to deal with, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Like if you put a motor on the dyno and it, it either doesn't make the horsepower that it should or it blows up on the dyno or, you know, there's a number of factors that could happen. Then that changes everything. Then you got to back up and punt. And then you got to come up with a plan of, who's doing what and who's going where and doing what and ordering parts and it changes everything. So yeah, that's when it's smooth <laughs> when all of that, just like, for example, we just got our brand new toter home last week. Oh, boy. And <laughs> so what is that? I had to unpack the entire toter home, the old one. And then I had to clean it, get it all ready because we are, um, it's being sold. Then the new one come in. So then you got a, Right now, we are at Spevco mounting a new awning on it. Um, so all of that's got to be done on top of getting all the motors done and getting everything ready to go to our next race. Oh, I figured that was going to go a whole different direction because that, again, I tell people there's there's three parts to a race weekend. There's getting there, there's the race weekend, and getting home. And the getting there and getting home involve trucks, trailers, RVs, toter homes. And that yeah. you could write an entire book about called what effed up with the rv this week people don't understand yeah. that portion of the show right especially something when it's brand new you have to learn something that's brand new and these things are these are fairly complex these aren't you know a 1976 winnebago there's a, there's a lot going on to them oh there is and so and our awning goes all the way to the front of the truck but our new truck is two foot longer so we're having to change the awning, redo the awning, mount the new brackets in different spots. So it's not just you take it off one RV and put it on another. It's not that easy. So, but we're getting it done and it'll look nice when it's done. And then on top of that, then we have to get the toter home wrapped. So, yeah. It, and it, then you have to match the lines in the wrap. So that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. I, I've been to an event where I was supposed to be staying in the totter home and it was relatively cold and the propane slash furnace in the totter home decided that it didn't want to play nice anymore. It was cold enough that, you know, I, I'm a pretty tough cookie, but when it's to the point where it's so cold that like you're, you can physically feel yourself potentially going into to shock or hypothermia, it's like, you know what, I'm going to have to get a hotel. We'll have yeah. to, we're going to have to figure out this problem later because we're here to race. And it's like, those kind of issues are just they, they they add a whole new level of stress to a race weekend. Yes, they do. It, it, it people don't understand, and then like if you're talking about mechanical issues and stuff like that, that plays into the fact that I think an underappreciated portion of the sport is if you want to be successful, how prepared you have to be, and especially at the professional levels like you guys are, that's probably a like you know three quarters of the battles how well you are prepared going into a race weekend, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you know, you can be as prepared as possible. There's still going to be some things that it doesn't go as smooth as it can and things are going to break and it's just part of the nature of the beast. But, you know, all in all, you know, I think we've been very successful because I'm a, I'm a planner and I'll have the next couple of weeks planned out of what's going to happen. And yes, it doesn't always it come out like that, but 
I really try to do a good job at planning on what everybody's going to do the, those days coming into a race weekend so we know how it's going to go. That, that's one thing I've noticed, especially at the professional levels of drag racing, is that teams have a plan, they have a backup plan, and then they have a plan on how they deal with when things go completely sideways. Like you just you have to be able to function in that scramble environment. Yeah, you have to be able to function under stress. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you know you get it's uh it's something I've learned reading a lot of books about you know kind of like the Navy SEAL mindset. You know, you work the problem. You know, you don't right. you you work the problem. You don't worry about anything else. It's like this is what we got to figure out. Let's just figure it out and go. Now, I always like to kind of dig in and learn a little bit more about the guests because it's it's interesting to hear the stories and what you have to say. Now, when you first started drag racing bikes, what were some of the bikes that you were racing? You know, were they extended swing arm turbo bikes? Like, what was the first stuff you were you were playing with? Well, really, the only thing that I've only ever raced other than press out motorcycle is I raced a class called outlaw pro street which is an extended swing arm 75 inch wheelbase with nitrous and i went 704 at 195 miles an hour on that so that's really the only i had a local like a street bike that i took to the track just to learn for the first couple months and then i was like well hey i want to race and then that's what i got <laughs> so i kind of went from nothing to something so, <laughs> straight into the fire right Right. Which th that whole genre of, you know, when you start playing with some of the, the extended swing arm bikes, I, you know, I've had friends that race them, but, you know, with the XDRA and Jason Miller, and he brings those pro street bikes to the World Cup. Right. The first time I saw those bikes, I'll never forget, I was standing at half track. I forget the dude's name, but he's grabbing gears at half track on this turbo bike just to settle the nose down like this thing is wanting to pull the wheels half track runs like a six second 200 plus mile an hour run and the first thing that pops in my mind is that is probably the craziest person on this property right there hands down oh yeah and i know a lot of those guys uh, and i would have really liked to ride one but you know those bikes are going so fast now you know and matt's like you know we have to kind of focus on pro stock and you know if i wasn't racing pro stock then yes maybe but you know my focus has really shifted to pro stock but hats off to those guys you know they do a great job those bikes are fast and they just keep getting faster and faster sometimes i just worry about you know how the, the you know the tire is you know i just don't even understand how that tire holds up the, the street tire there's a limit to it it's like a mickey thompson drag right. radio yeah, you, you know when guys are going radial tire racing in full body cars and they run it at the quarter mile two fifty plus, I've said it a million times. I'm sure the engineers at Mickey Thompson probably look at that and go they they did what with the tire? That's not meant to do right. that. Right, I'm sure they do, and you know, luckily, you know, everybody has been safe so far on it, and I just hope that there never comes a time where the, those bikes get too fast and they start having tire issues. Now, I think it would be interesting because, you know, the grudge bike scene is a whole different realm. For yes. some reason, I think that you and Matt would excel in the grudge bike scene. Just call it a hunch with your personalities and competitiveness. Something tells me that you guys would probably clean up pretty well in that game. Is that something you, yeah. is that something if you ever thought about maybe, you know, dipping a toe in if the opportunity was there? I mean, Matt certainly has but matt when matt doesn't have anything to do when he's bored like covid he likes to do all these extravagant projects <laughs> and um and i just I, sometimes i go with it and sometimes i'm like you know i don't know um he built me a real street bike which is um it's kind of a it was a bike that runs on alcohol um street tire and all that and we built it, and now we don't have time to run it, so then now we sold it. But um, the grudge scene, I love the grudge scene because, you know, I know all of those people. You know, I come from I come from those races, Outlaw Pro Street. They used to have a grudge. They would shut everything off at 9 or 10 o'clock at night at the races that I used to go to. And they would have grudge racing from 10 till like one o'clock in the morning. They turn the scoreboards off. I lock the tower 
and it was only the wind light. And I would love just to go up there and watch those. And, you know, I've grudge raced a couple people at times. Yeah, I think we would do really good in it. But, you know, time's the thing. And, you know, those um, those bikes, they're spending as much on those bikes that they are pro stop motorcycles. So oh. we couldn't afford to go grudge racing and pro stop racing. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's another part of the grudge game. Like high level successful grudge racing, at least in the door car world. And it sounds like it transitions to the bike world as well. Those guys yeah. are spending cubic dollars to try to win back cubic dollars. Exactly. And when, it, that, that's insane. When they are, um, when they're betting, uh, I think the biggest grudge race I've ever been or been seen on the starting line. And I was there. It was many, many years ago. It was probably 20, 25 years ago. Uh, it was a grudge race. And it was for a hundred thousand dollars at Rockingham. Yeah, it, it it hits a little different, doesn't it? When yeah, I don't know that I. <laughs> I mean, I handle pressure pretty well, but I mean, I if I had to grudge race, they could not. Just don't even tell me how much money it's for. Just let me go do my thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it it changes things a little bit when you know that there's six figures on the line. Totally right. Exactly. It, 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 like you said, it, it, I've been around one of those big, big high dollar grudge races and there's a level of intensity to a normal grudge race, but when it's that big, the only thing that I can think of to like, that maybe people would understand is the energy intensity. It's like a heavyweight prize fight. Like the people that are involved are so focused. It's almost like they're like, they're trying to launch the space shuttle. Like you don't, you don't talk to them. You just, you let them do their thing. The driver don't even get near him because the, the gravity of the situations on them. And it's, you know, if you think about it, you're racing for enough money, you could buy a house. That's insane. Right. (laughs) I think about what all, what I could buy and what I could do and what our program would look like if we had that much money. So (laughs) I probably wouldn't be a good one. No, no. It it comes (laughs) down to. Yeah, that awesome that money be awesome to win, but you know, there's a 50-50 shot that you're not going to win that money. Right. Now, I think it would be interesting and there's been some kind of, you know, play around this as well with at the NHRA level if they brought more of some of that flavor to it, you know, that that person to let you guys really let the personalities out. I think it would be interesting to see that brought to the NHRA. What what are your thoughts on that? I do. I think what what I think would be cool is if, you know, they took one of our nighttime qualifying passes, if they did like the Friday night pass, if we got back to four qualifying passes, two on Friday, two on Saturday, and maybe take the nighttime qualifying pass and do a little grudge race and do like a call out. Who do you want to call out? Even though it's still qualifying and put like an incentive, like put kind of an incentive on it. You know, if you... Let's just say that if you go out there and you run low ET or top speed or whatever of all of that whole round and you get like a thousand dollar bonus or something, I think that would be cool. And like the top, maybe the top eight people or the top four people or the top five people get to do a call out. You can call out whoever you want within your class. I think that would be cool. Oh, totally. It, it from for me kind of straddling multiple areas of drag racing the outlaw area that i get to go to the no prep stuff and some of that there is such a level of excitement there it's a lot different that you know it's hard to explain to people maybe don't follow the scene the nhra is very i I joke nothing wrong with it love the nhra but it reminds me of it's like golf or tennis there's decorum you know it, mm-hmm. it it has a different feel. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's just that, that I think it would benefit greatly from having that level of excitement that, that, you know, like you said, call outs and stuff like that. I do too. And I mean, and maybe we'll see more of that in the future. I do know that they did kind of a call out for the, the pet boys, um, yeah. the all-star thing for top fuel. They did that this year. So, you know, maybe there's trying to, you know, kind of loosen the reins per se and kind of go a different avenue and 
do that stuff. I, I again, like, I, you know, following NHRA the way that I do, one of my favorite rivalries right now, as I'll say it, is like the Smiths versus Steve Johnson. Not going to lie. Yeah. I love it because Steve, I've had him on the show. I've had some great experience with Steve before I started doing this for a living. He's a character. You guys are characters. It adds a different level to it. And the way that you guys are handling this rivalry is perfect. It's just spicy enough that it doesn't get ugly and personal, but you can, you can feel it and it's there and it makes me pay attention to pro stock motorcycle racing a hundred times more because I look at the ladder. I want to see, are any of these people going to line up against each other? Cause you know, it's going to take it to the next level. Yes, for sure. And rivalries are good to have. And, you know, sometimes there are racers that step out of bounds and maybe do or say things that they really shouldn't. And, you know, that's on them. You know, we try to keep it professional, except, you know, there's a little spiciness to it. But, you know, we just we have to keep it professional for our sponsors, mainly because, you know, they're the ones that pay our bill at the end of the day. But um, I will say, you know, there's no love lost between the Smiths and the Johnsons. No, and honestly, you can tell, but you can tell that it's like, it's not, you know, ugly personal. It's, I'm, you know, I'll I'll use the word respect. There's a respect there that you know that the other party's a good competitor and you want to beat them cleanly. You want to beat them so bad they want to sell their stuff. That's what I like to see. Right, exactly. And that's what the fans... And, you know, we're in the entertainment business and that's what they want to see. And that's what they're getting. They're getting they're getting a lot of it this year for sure. And, and I think you guys need to go talk to Greg Anderson and Erica Enders because they're like almost there. It, it's funny to watch. Like you can tell sometimes you can just see Erica's like balling up what she wants to say. She goes, keep it. You know, you can just see the internal monologue, like her almost saying like, keep it together, keep it together. But you know, she just wants to like burst out of that you know I I would love to see those two really intensify that rivalry right and I mean you know they are probably the two that's been doing it the longest in pro stock and you know their rivalry is still strong and so that means pro stocks doing they're doing a good job at keeping that going oh and it it, to me it it really shows that racing doesn't identify with what gender you are, what race you are, creed, color, religion, anything. It's about what you can do as a driver. And if you kind of look at drag racing, in my opinion, it is the most diverse form of motorsports out there, period. Yes, it is. We have just about everybody. And, you know, and that's good. You know, not only do girls get to compete with guys, and that brings up a question. So when people don't, really know who I am and you know if I have to say you know if if I'm asked what my job is or whatever and I have to say I'm a professional racer or whatever you know I get asked a lot you know are are you in the girls class no I'm not in the girls class (laughs) I kind of get mad about it no I'm not in the girls class you know I race with the best of the best whether you're a male, female, whatever. I mean, I, I feel like NHRA Pro Stock Motorcycle is the elite of drag racing. And I race with the best racers out there. Yeah. And that's what, again, it makes it so amazing to see. And I think the, the coolest moment, I think, will be when there is an all-female podium in an NHRA national event. That right there will cement i think that that feeling and that sentiment and the fact that it is the most diverse sport in the world period i do and i think it's coming i mean you know there's been many races where there's two girls me and erica won together in vegas in 2020 and you know it's coming i do know it's coming there will be a day that that all the stars align and that it's all girls on that podium and that will be a very monumental day for nhra Oh, totally. And it, to me, it, to me, it's all about just, again, the personalities and the racing and, you know, the, the fact that we have all these legit different people in the sport that have won. You know, you look at someone like Antron Brown, who is, I think, I'm pretty sure he's the only person that's won a title in 
pro stock bike and then another professional category, correct? I think so, yes. Let alone pro stock bike to top fuel, which you cannot get any further from the polar opposites. You know what I mean? Right. It, it, tr- it truly is. And, you know, I've always said that I would love to go race top fuel. Matt will drive anything, anything that's offered to him, whether it's pro stock car, funny car, top fuel. He wants to ride a fuel bike. I've vetoed that uh, yeah. every time he asks because he's he's asked multiple times. So it's just um, it's a, just about being there and you know being a racer. You know, let's be a hundred percent honest. The people who ride fuel bikes scare me. They yeah. <laughs> when when I always ask racers, you know, what's the one thing you wouldn't want to race when you have a funny car or a pro mod racer tell you, I wouldn't want to get on a nitro Harley. That should speak volumes about that level of insanity that that vehicle puts out there. You know, and a lot of people say pro stop motorcycle. They think that we are crazy for riding a bike. I mean, you know, there's been a couple top fuel drivers and they're like, you know, what in the world? They put an onboard camera on my bike. Uh, I think it was Charlotte um, this past year. Yep. And I didn't realize how much my handlebars move because I guess it's just so second nature to me that it just is, it just, it is what it is. Krista Baldwin put heck freaking no, I would not freaking ride your bike. And I mean, it's just, it's what seems so natural and just whatever to us is so, you know, eye opening to everybody else. Yeah, it's it's funny that the first time I I remember, you know, first time shooting Nitro Harleys and I see the guys putting on like flak jackets and oh. I'm like, well, what's that all about? And one of the crew guys is like, yeah, if it blows up, they need a way to, you know, protect their chest region. And the thought that parts pops in my mind is what would possess you want to ride something that you literally have to ride a bullet, wear a bulletproof vest to ride it? Yeah. I'm out. I'm not riding one. I can honestly say that. I would not ride one. Anything that you got to have a bulletproof vest on, I'm out. Like, and my husband's out, and I'm speaking for him. Yeah. He think, he thinks he's in, but he's out. You know, there, there's, a, there's a saying I learned a long time ago, Angie, and it's made my life a lot easier. When mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. Right, exactly. We'll let the nitro bikes, we'll let all the guys that ride nitro bikes, they can ride nitro bikes. It's fine. You know, they they're doing a great job at it. We do a good job at pro stock and that's where we're going to stay. I mean, I wouldn't mind. He's drove a pro mod car. That doesn't scare me. You know, if he got in a top fuel car, funny car, that wouldn't scare me, but a nitro bike, I I just, I I would not be able to sleep and I wouldn't be okay with it. And and, you know, the other thing is Matt doesn't look like your typical nitro Harley racer because most of those guys look like Harley dudes. They are big, burly guys they are not jockey size individuals you know big difference there as well right for sure and um i think he just wants to go out there to do it to say that he could do it and he can do it and there's no doubt in my mind that he could do it i know he can do it because he's good at everything he does and i know he could do it i just don't want him to do it and that harkens back, I think, to something as racers that we always need that individual that's willing to reel us in because we we don't have a real good sense of danger meter sometimes. Let's be honest. No, we don't. And, I mean, I don't either. You know, just about certain things, like I'll go skydiving. I, my philosophy in life is I'll try anything once. If it doesn't kill me, then I'm good. I've always said that. It's kind of my motto I live by, but, um, yeah, I'm out on the top of your bike. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, you know, something I've always loved to watch are fuel alters. I love those things are wild. They're crazy. But I drive one, ugh, you know, it's, it's a lot like a funny car, but a lot more squirrely and angry. It's like a pro mod slash funny car kind of got together and hung out and made a love child. That's a fuel altered. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just, it's whatever you're in love with, and, you know, you know, you have to love what you do in this sport, for sure. Yeah. Now, 
as you've kind of progressed through your career, and I was reading up on this on a Drag Illustrated article about you to get a little bit more background, that, you know, originally you weren't very hands-on, and then you became hands-on. Did that really change your ability to give feedback to the, you know, to a, a crew chief when you really started turning wrenches and understanding how the bike worked? A hundred percent. And I wish I would have learned the things that I've learned now. I wish I would have learned it 10 years ago before than what I did. And I would have that much more knowledge. I feel like now at the, at the end of the track, I can give Matt a lot of data that he needs if the bike does something wrong, if, you know, whatever, I give him a lot more data now than I did when I was just a writer. You know, I just wish that I would have learned it 10 years before the time that I did, because, you know, it, it, it helps you in so many aspects. It helps you in when you're looking at the computer, you can tell them what the bike's doing. You feel different things and, you know, it makes you a better rider and then he can make better tuning calls and, you know, you know, and that I say that because last year, you know, we were having an issue with my bike because I, I didn't know it was an issue that I just couldn't. I would tell him what it was doing, but I couldn't 100 percent describe it because it was not all the time. So he decided to get on my bike. On, in Vegas, we stayed over the day after and tested my bike. And he was like, yeah, you're right. There's something wrong. But he, at first, he didn't know what was wrong with it. And then, you know, we started digging through stuff and changing stuff. And by the end of the test session, we figured out what it was. But I had wasted almost an entire year of, of something being wrong with my bike. Now... Everybody sees my bike is fixed, you know, because I'm running a lot better than I was last year. I fought this for the last two years on my motorcycle. And you can tell now, I because a lot of people were like, oh, well, why don't Angie have as much horsepower? And why don't Angie this and Angie that? I've always had the same amount of horsepower. I have the same motor that I ran last year, this year, the same exact one just has upgraded stuff like, you know, new home, new pistons and things like that. I have the same exact one. It's just when you get your bike fixed and it's, and it's just spot on, you can see now that, you know, we're going to be a tough contender this year. And that harkens back to once again, just how surgically precise these pro stock vehicles are that just the smallest thing can make that much of a difference. It truly can. And, you know, we always joke and I'm not going to say what it was, but we always joke and we're like, did you really think that that would make that big of a difference? And so it's the ongoing joke with our team now because we really didn't think it would make that big of a difference. Even when we fixed it before we ever made a lap with it fixed, he was like, well, I don't think it'll I don't think it'll affect the 60 foot that much. Maybe one number. It affected it like two or three numbers. Oh, wow. Every, yeah. That, that's, that's a lifetime, especially in a pro stock vehicle. Yes, it is. And we went from being, you know, anywhere from eighth to 12th and 60 foot to top five. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a big difference. Now, on the innovation side of things with pro stock bike, is there, how does that process work? You know, is there like, you know, I always joke or, you know, kind of look at it as, you know, there's inside the box and outside the box and and door car racing. Does that translate to the same way and how you approach innovation with one of these bikes that there's just stuff that you guys look at and go, I wonder if we change this, if I'll make that big of a difference. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, we're all the time, you know, we'll, you know, put a different tire on or we'll change rocker arm ratio or we'll change our transmission gears. You know, we're all the time changing stuff. When we had four qualifying passes, we did a lot more testing during the race than we do now with us just only having three. The reason why three is not a benefit is because we only have one nighttime session. And that is Friday night. 
So usually the first path, you have to be set on kill, but it can't be set on kill so much that you go out there and spin the tire, then you're, you know, 10th, 11th, or 12th, then it gets hot on Saturday because you're going to run qualifying at 12 o'clock or 3 o'clock. It's hot during those times. Then you're not going to be one of those top eight bikes. And you really want to be one of those top eight bikes when it comes Sunday. So I will say, you know, the four qualifying passes has kind of not put a dampener on our testing during qualifying. I mean, there will be every now and then we'll try something. But I will say we did test a lot more and a lot more trying new stuff during qualifying when we had four qualifying passes. So what's something that might kind of surprise our listeners when it comes to you know, the the world of pro stock bike racing they might not know about. Because, you know, there's a lot of general stuff, but I always find it interesting. You know, what are the details or something interesting that people might not know about that kind of goes into making one of these bikes fast? You know, is there anyth- any, anything you could add to something like that, a question like that? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Matt's dad used to race, race pro stock car, then he switched over to pro mod. So Matt got a lot of hands-on training with Pro Stock, Pro Mod, and all of that. We run our transmission gear ratios on a Pro Stock bike very, very similar to a Pro Stock car. A lot of people don't realize that. Oh, really? Yeah. So that is kind of an intriguing thing. Um, He's had a lot of training with his dad, and it's about, you know, getting the vehicle moving. And that's why you will see not necessarily Matt on a Suzuki right now change transmissions because you have to take the whole motor out. But at any given time, you know, on my bike, you could come over there and see my transmissions not in my motor because our, the transmissions on the V-Twin application, they come out the side. It's like eight volts and it comes out the side and you can change gear ratios. That is why in Gainesville, when we didn't get any qualifying, I think I will go on record and say this. I was probably the most confident person going in to race day with zero qualifying. I was fine that we didn't have any qualifying. And, you know, you would walk up and down the row and see teams like, you know, kind of sweating at crew chiefs, kind of sweating it, you know, kind of not knowing what to do because they didn't get a shot at the racetrack. I was fine. I was, I said, we could race every race like this if y'all want to. And then you were, you know, a lot of people were like, I can't believe you would say that only because I pulled my transmission out. I put a very low, low gear in it. So it might not have been as fast. I mean, it just kind of, we lugged it through first gear so it wouldn't spin the tire, but then we poured it on, on down the track because I knew that once we got it rolling, it would be okay. It was the starting line that everybody was worried about. And if you go back and watch the Gainesville race, I mean, yes, I went to the finals and, you know, every, every round it got a little warmer, but I think the most altitude we ever had that day was like 80 above sea level. I mean, so it was like extremely good air, but I wasn't worried because I went in and I changed the transmissions. So I, uh, And I put in a transmission ratio that I knew would go up and down the racetrack on a very cold, light rubber racetrack. Interesting that you guys operate the same way because I think that's something a lot of people don't understand about pro stock cars is that they might – they don't maybe hang around the pits when in between rounds because it's not like a nitro team that's going through this big, crazy thrash except in the transmission department because that transmission's coming out and they're waiting to the last possible minute to see what the conditions are before they set what they're going to do with the clutch and the transmission. Right. And that, yep. that in an NA car, especially one where it's so important or in any bike, you know, to get off the line, that gear ratio will make or break you hands down. For sure. I mean, that's the, I would say probably at least 50 or 60% of the run is your first 60 feet. And no amount of horsepower is going to be able to overcome a bad front half of the track in an NA vehicle. You can have, you can have 800 horsepower on a pro stop motorcycle. If you don't know how to manage it, you will go nowhere. Yeah. 
and that kind of also maybe people don't understand as much about you know the the clutch work that goes into those because that again that's like a that's like the trigger on a firearm that's you know the 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 key to the whole the whole process isn't it yes it is and you know we run um an mtc lockup clutch in mine and you know it is it's kind of the old school of what pro stop motorcycles run now a lot of people run a gen 2 clutch or a gan clutch which is kind of like a a clutch that slides it through first gear and then kind of comes in second gear and mine is not like that like i have i have it all 100 percent when i drop the clutch so and mine is rear wheel driven (laughs) that's hard to say fast but um and that's kind of old school in our class and um matt knows that like the back of his hand and i don't see that clutch going anywhere we have actually tested the other two clutches in my bike you know throughout the season and in test sessions and things like that we're the fastest with that with the clutch that we run that's interesting that i had no idea that there were so many different clutch options for a pro stock bike that's kind of wild oh yeah and again, it's sort of like you hear them talk about the different, you know, clutch, you know, what the five and six disc clutches that the fuel cars run. And it's kind of, you know, the same sliding theory that that clutch is really how you manipulate and apply that horsepower. And ultimately is the, the you know, the, the clutch person is one of the most important people on the team. Exactly. And, you know, Matt's really good at what he does. He, you know, he knows the clutch back and forth and, you know, my hat's off to him because. I think that's one of the hardest jobs, uh, you know, the fuel injection and, and the clutch is probably two of the hardest jobs. And he does really good job at both. Yeah. And I think, I know it's true with pro stock and even some power adder cars to a certain degree that you have to have a very delicate hand with how you play with power management because you are riding a very thin line with how you can get that power to down optimally, especially probably on a bike, right? Right, for sure. Well, you have one tire versus two tires, and, you know, there can be a little, you know, a small window of how you get through, you know, and there's so many factors when it comes to the motorcycle because the rider has got to let the clutch out on time and, and do a good job and getting rid of the clutch you know, the, the bike can't be upset when the, when the clutch is released, like you don't, if we call we call it chicken necks, (laughs) that's what we call it. But if you let the clutch go and it kind of throws your neck back, you know, that upsets the bike because then it puts all the pressure on the wheelie bars and, you know, you can't make the bike pogo. So there's so many things that go into just launching a pro stock bike that, your tuner has to know what he's doing because he has to make sure that you're going to do the same thing every time. And all pro stock motorcycles are hardtails, right? Yes. So yeah, they're not suspended. That's why I want to be a hundred. No, no, no rear suspension, right? No shock. That that's what I, that's what I thought. And that again, changes <laughs> that, that is not an easy thing to try to make go fast down the track period. Right. Because that changes how you have to apply that power because then it's, you know, you have to, you're a lot more kind of tied to what the track is going to let you do. Right. So, and, you know, and a lot of that goes into where you line up on the track and, you know, and, you know, when you get to hot racetracks and, you know, the track temperature is 145, you know, there's always some discussion of, where to line up because you know it's going to be gooey at 145 so do you line up where everybody else is lining up or do you pick another spot and usually matt will go out of the groove and a lot of people think that he is crazy when he'll put an x and it is like in left field per se um not in the tire groove not in the tire groove closest to the tree when he puts the tire, uh, an X in the middle of the track and that's where he puts me or whatever, 
and people just look at them and shake their head. But then I go out there and go low 60 foot and, and run a, a fast pass. Then you'll see everybody, all the teams behind us go there. Yep. It's kind of like you want to want one duck to do it and see if it works. And then everybody else will follow. It's reading a track is an art and a science. Mm-hmm. It, and especially with high horsepower vehicles that are on a small tire, you know, bracket racers raz some of us heads up racers all the time. Why is it, you know, why do you need someone to line you up and do this, that, and the other? Because I'm trying to put about 2,000 horsepower down on a very teeny tiny tire in a very small groove. It's not the same as having a couple big steamrollers on the back. People don't understand how much of a difference that really, really makes. It does, and it makes a huge difference. And uh, he's really good at what he does, I will tell you that. Because, you know, there's sometimes I'm like, you really want me to go over there? And he's like, just trust me. And if he says that, then that's usually where I go. (laughs) Oh, I I have been in Matt's shoes where people have looked at me like I have two heads when I've put my driver out of the groove or like a half a tire out of the groove. And they're looking at me like, why are you doing that? I'm like, you know, I'm not looking just right here. I'm looking when, you know, when you transition into a different gear, when the car shifts and when the converter comes in, you've got to worry about that with these vehicles as well. Right. Yeah. You look on out. You can't just look at just the starting line. So. Yeah. And as a crew chief, sometimes you'll walk up and you, you got to tell the driver rider, Hey, you know, first 60 feet will probably be okay. After that, things might get kind of dicey. So just, you know, be aware. Yeah, exactly. You, I, when he put me in the right tower groove of the right, uh, right tower groove, right lane in Gainesville, when I was in the final for Karen, he's like, you know, this lane's crowned. You're just going to have to line up in the right tower groove. I'm going to point you left. Just trust it. It'll go. And it did. We had a great race. I mean, she went 70. I went 72. But just when you make so many passes, thousands of passes in the groove closest to the tree, and then you got to switch to the other groove, you know, it's kind of mind, mind racking. It plays with plays with you and you just have to put it out of your brain and just go out there and just say, I got to do this. Yeah. And also at the same time, you have to, you know, sometimes think out the box and say, well, something's going to happen. Hopefully it's good. And you just, yeah. you just got to roll with it. That's right. <laughs> well, Angie, I always like to throw a fun question at my guests towards the end to kind of, you know, loosen things up and have some fun. And, you know, I'd be curious to see if you had to race something else other than a pro stock bike. Off the table, classes discontinued, doesn't exist anymore. And you had to jump into like a door car or something like that. You know, what would you want to drive? Well, if I had to, if it was a door car, I definitely would go pro mod racing. I'd have to hire my father-in-law to be my crew chief and I'd have to do nitrous. (laughs) Um, But um, if I had, you know, no restraints could do anything, I definitely would go top fuel racing because, you know, I would love to see what it feels like to go 330 miles an hour. Yeah. Like that, that has to be, I mean, you've gone over 200. That's a whole different sensation that I hope to experience someday, but tack on another 130 mile an hour and 300 less feet that's got to be that's got to be a ticket oh yeah it i know it's insane i mean i've always said i wanted to drive a top fuel car i mean i'm you know bikes are they are such an adrenaline rush and going 200 is an adrenaline rush but i'm just telling you i would love to strap those seat belts on and uh and go 330 miles an hour. Maybe you can get with uh, with Brittany Force and you guys can do like a, a driver swap one weekend during test and be like, hey, you know, I'll let you ride my bike. Why don't, you, why don't you let me jump in that top fueler for a hit? Just one hit. Right. I know. She probably, as much as she probably don't want to ride my motorcycle, she probably wouldn't want me to drive her car. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Good. Good. it would just be one of those things. Or you could go to Scott Palmer, who by the time before you could probably finish the sentence, he would probably have riding leathers on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I could see him doing it for sure. I mean, I don't think I think there's probably nothing that he wouldn't try. So I I always say he's the craziest person in drag racing because he stuck a pro uh, a nitro engine in a pro mod and he's trying to go 300 miles an hour in a door car. Exactly. That ain't right. (laughs) That ain't Right. right. Well, 
I like to give my guests, you know, an opportunity to channel their inner John Force and thank all their sponsors and tell people, you know, where they're at, what's going on. So, Angie, I'll turn the floor over to you. You can thank your sponsors. Tell people where they can learn more about, you know, your racing program and, you know, where you guys will be next. So the floor is yours, my friend. Um, I just want to say thank you to uh, Lisa from Denzo. Denzo Auto Parts, they have been my longtime supporter, sponsor for the last five years. Um, Mark Stockseth, Marshall Stockseth, they have been Matt's partner in this deal uh, since 2007. Lucas Oil, Greg Butcher Trucking, you know, NHRA, you know, they give us a safe place to race and a great place to race. Worldwide Barons, um, BMRS, Kenny's Components, Vanson Leathers, Impact, Helmets, Savage Designs, Clevite, you know, everybody that helps us, JMS, Daytona Sensors, Darton Sleeves, Goodson, Pro Things, PSI, thank you to all of those people that help us because absolutely it takes an, an army to get us to the track, to get us there, to get us racing, and to, to do all the things that we do. And we're so blessed to have this opportunity. And I forgot one, CP Carrillo. They give us great pistons and great rods especially for my V twin program. So thank you to all of those people. Awesome, Angie. Thank you so much. You know, look forward to probably see up. Uh, you, are you guys going to be at Norwalk this year? Yes, we'll be there. Awesome. Well, I will stop by and say hi at Norwalk and uh, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thank you.